And then next week, we're going to wrap up during Memorial Day weekend. And so I think this has been a great uh, story or a great letter, I should say, a great book. And so hopefully you have found it to be so as well. So let us read then what James has to say. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there doing business and making money. Yet, you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wishes, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we do come to you on this beautiful day with yet one more hard word from James. We pray, Lord, that you would help us To not be defensive, but to hear what you might have to say to us. Not for how we might live tomorrow, but for how we might live this very day. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So I think that most of us um, have particular friends that we need in particular times of our lives. Um, there, are, there are times when, uh, when, when, when perhaps what you need is, is you need someone who's just going to listen to you and not give you any advice at all. And so we have particular friends. Oftentimes those are not our husbands. Um, they are somebody else who is just going to listen and not feel like they have to say, oh, well, here's what you should do or, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, sometimes you just want to be heard. And then there are other times when you may need um, some encouragement. Perhaps you're going through a challenging time. And almost all of us, I hope, we have particular friends who are just really good at being encouragers. And so we, we go to them and they, they encourage us. They make us uh, feel a little bit better. Then we have other times, of course, um, when, when perhaps we're a bit tired. And, uh, but we also don't want to talk to somebody, but we don't want to be alone. And so those are for our friends who we are really comfortable with. And we know that we can just get together. And they're not going to ask us anything. And they're okay with, with silence. And then there are those friends, those particular friends. There are those times when we realize that what we most need is for someone to tell us the absolute truth. And not something that we necessarily want to hear, but something that we know we need to hear. 
And for me, it seems like these are what, these are our James friends. Because James, and hopefully by now, after we've gone through this over the last couple of months, hopefully he's a bit of a friend now to us. James is one of those people, as we have learned, who is going to tell you exactly what he thinks, even if you don't want to hear it. But I think, and this is one of the most important things about friends like this, one of the reasons why we listen to those friends is because we know that they love us, that they care for us, and that they believe in us. And one of the things that seems to me that's critical when it comes to James is to be aware that when James looks at the early church, and I would suggest when James looks at this church even, that what James knows is that this is a place where if we will listen and not just hear, but we will actually begin to do what it is that James is calling us to do, that we could make a radical difference in our lives and in the lives of those in our community and our world. James believes, it seems to me, that the church is the place through which the mission of God can actually happen. So that when James looks at us and he has these words which are not easy to hear, James says, the reasons why I am telling you this is because I think that you can actually do this. And if we can do this together, we can make a difference in the kingdom of God. And if what, as we've said throughout James, if part of the desire is for us to go to bed looking more like Jesus than when we woke up, and for the sun to set with our community looking more like the kingdom of God than when the sun rose, then if we would actually listen to these words of James, James says, you can do this if you will follow these words. But they are not easy. James confronts us here in this very beginning of this uh, passage here in the fourth chapter. And he forces us to face something that the vast majority of us do not like to face, which is the reality that our lives are fragile and that we are remarkably vulnerable. These are not the things that we want to hear, but James is very clear. What does he say? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? But James is not the only writer to do this. Psalm, uh, the psalmist tells us to count our days uh, and number them. In other words, to realize that we only have a limited amount of days. Hosea, when Hosea the prophet, when he begins to talk about our lives, he says that they are like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. Right? These are not things that you find on most Hallmark cards. But James says what we cannot do, and he says there are far too many who begin to make plans and who begin to look at their lives and act as if they are completely in control and act as if there is no question that they will be able to accomplish anything. And James says they think they will do this on their own without being mindful of the reality that our lives are fragile. I said this 
I told the story probably a couple years ago now about uh, about 20 years ago, whenever uh, my heart was kind of off uh, a rhythm, it had an, an arrhythmia, they couldn't kind of control it. And so they thought, well, it's probably nothing, but let's, let's do a heart scan anyways and do this ultrasound. And so I laid down there and they came in and they had this uh, little object, whatever it was, and they, they began to just kind of slowly go over, right, your chest. And all of a sudden, right, I, I looked up there on the monitor and I saw my actual heart. And I am here to say, if you ever want to know how fragile your life is, get in there and, have the, and look at your actual heart. It is frightening. Because you sit there and you see these little valves, these little flaps. I don't know how big they are. I could have looked it up. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, they're not that big. And they, you, you, you watch it and, and, and like, you know, the person there just like, okay, well, right there, you can see this. I'm like, can you take this a little more seriously, right? And, and, and I could see those flaps, right? And they would just kind of, they would open and they'd close. And at some point you're just like, come on, you can do this. Open, yes. All right, come on, close, yes. And you realize all of a sudden, right, we live our lives just not even thinking about our hearts and thinking like, oh, yeah, this thing's like rock solid. Oh, no, no, no. When you look at that, you realize that at any moment it could stop. And it's this remarkable feeling of fragility and vulnerability. And after that experience, I felt remarkably different about life, right? Now, for a little while, you're just super scared, right? I mean, you're just walking around like, hey, what's up? What? Right? You're kind of frightened, right? But at some point, right, for those of us, I don't think that James wants us to go around and be scared all the time. But I do think that James says there are far too many of us, far too many of us, including followers of Jesus, Far too many who do not, who are not cognizant of the reality that life is fragile and that it is a gift and that you have done nothing to give yourself life. We easily go on and not even think about the creator who has given us this life. And one of the great things about understanding how fragile our lives are is it reminds us that we are not God. And so you begin to then start thinking about life in a different way. If it is a gift from the Almighty, then how am I living today? See, and that's another part of the vulnerability and fragility of life that James sees here. He says, don't you make these plans as if you know tomorrow is going to come. But he says, if you really genuinely understand how fragile life is and how it is a gift from God, then you will realize that it means not only is your life a gift, but today is a gift. And there are far too many of us who assume that we have tomorrow and so who we think we will start working on some of these things tomorrow. And James says, no, think about all the different things that James has been telling us to do. He says that you are to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And do you know when you're supposed to start doing that? Now. James says, don't quit using your tongue to bless and to curse And start doing that, start making that shift today. James says, start loving your neighbor, not tomorrow, but today. James says, stop being envious and stop coveting. When? Not tomorrow, but today. He says, stop slandering, not tomorrow, but today, right? What, what oftentimes happens, right? Let's say for slander, right? For gossiping. We have this great little nugget of gossip and we think, oh, that's right. Oh, we talked about this. All right, let me do this one last time. 
No, no, no. James says if you keep waiting to start until tomorrow, then it will never happen. James says quit thinking that you know for sure that you have tomorrow and start making the change today. Your life is fragile. You are not God. You do not know that you have the morrow. So begin making those shifts today. Far too often we are chained to what happens tomorrow and nothing ever changes. But James says if you want to be shaped like Jesus, if you want to go to bed, not tomorrow looking more like Jesus than today, but tonight, then do so. Stop waiting and acting as if tomorrow is going to come. So James begins by saying, look, how are you spending your time? And then James says, Well, I want us to think not only about how we are spending our time, but I want us to think about how we are spending our money. Now, this is a little bit more of an awkward part of the passage for us. I hope you heard it. My guess is that most of us did. As I was looking over the passage, I realized that clearly I should have given this part of the passage to somebody else to preach because it is not comfortable. What does James say? James says, come now, you rich people. Weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted and their rust will be evidence against you and it will eat your flesh like fire. Now, let me address this quickly. We have have far too many engineers in this congregation who have said to me after the 9 o'clock, I realize I should have addressed it. Well, you know, silver and gold technically do not rust. (laughs) Man, this place is annoying sometimes. I know. People talk about that. James realizes that, okay? This is, this is, you know, it's kind of metaphor, people, all right? We need some more literature, people, and fewer engineers. We realize that. But it is also a very vivid image and should awaken most of us. Now, here's the thing. Most scholars, at least most of the scholars that I looked at, they said, look, here's the reality. There's a good chance that the people to whom James is talking about in this particular part of the passage are not actually in the church. That more than likely what James is describing are people who are wealthy and who are not following Jesus. If you kind of put yourself in the context of James and the early church, while there were some wealthy, that more often than not, they were the poor and the oppressed. And so James kind of talking about the wealthy and what's going to happen to those who are both kind of holding on to what they have and who are more worried about their own luxuries and and who are not caring for their workers, that more than likely what James is trying to do is to say, hey, hold on, church. We know that you're being oppressed. We know that you're struggling. We know that while others are worried about their vacations, you're worried about bread. We understand that. But know this, justice one day will come upon those who are wealthy and are not giving it away. So James, and my guess is they're probably right, James very well may not have been thinking precisely of those who are wealthy within the church. So we could, I suppose, just chop this up for that. We could kind of cut out people who we know who are wealthy and not following the church, and we could, we could, you know, we could send them letters with those in there, these little clippings, right? We could do that. 
But I have a feeling that that's not exactly what James is wanting us to do. I have a feeling, actually, then, that what James wants us to do, rather than say, whoo, glad he wasn't talking to us, is to ask this critical question. If James is not talking to us, and yet James knows, as we know, that there are far too many, and let me just say this, the vast majority of Americans as a whole are wealthy, not to speak about those who in America even are wealthy. If there are those who are living in such a way that they think, hey, great, we have all this wealth, and we're going to worry about our own luxuries and our own vacations and our own cars and our own houses, and even if we own a business, we don't care if we don't let you know the people who are doing these kind of menial tasks, if they get paid that much. Who cares about them? Let's just care about ourselves. You know what James is saying? If this is the case, and if a part of our call is to be a witness to these people, we could just sit over here and send letters to them telling them what they're doing wrong. We could just tell them what they're doing wrong. Or we could make sure that we are a community who is living in marked contrast to how the kingdom of the world is living. That we are living in such a way that they can look at us from over there and say, here is a group of people who it seems they may have money, they may have this or that, but they are living in a different kind of way. Leslie Newbigin, I've said this quote before, he was a missionary in India for 40 years from Britain, then he went back to England again and, and realized that England itself was a mission field. And he said, he said, the best hermeneutic of the gospel, which is just a fancy way of saying the most effective way for us to interpret the good news of Jesus Christ is not to tell them these things, per se, or to cast judgment on them, but is, he says, a community who is actually living it out. That's a James kind of community who is actually living out the faith that we have been told that we are called to live. So what does it look like for us if we have money, if we have money, what does it look like for us to spend that money in a way that represents the kingdom of God in marked contrast to the kingdom of this world? Well, one of the parables that is oftentimes brought up when it comes to this passage in James is the parable of the rich fool. We've talked about this parable, I don't know, two and a half years ago or so, and you're probably familiar with it. I always remember it because I remember it from this children's storybook I had, and um, it, it, was, it always kind of frightened me. And, and, and it's the story of the rich fool. And here's what, here's, what, here's what the parable is that Jesus says. Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Now, when I was a kid, I thought that basically what this meant was being rich was bad and being poor was good, which was perfect for me because after my parents divorced, we were very poor. So I thought we were in good shape. But the more that you look at this passage and you wrestle with it, it seems to me that it isn't quite so clear in fact, there's some fascinating things going on with this that we can just briefly touch on. 
One of those is where, is where the parable says, this very night your life will be demanded of you. The word demanded is a, is a financial term. And usually what it meant was, you have taken a loan and now I am calling back that loan. I want that money back. In other words, what God is saying to the rich fool is, you did not spend that money well, you have not spent your time well, and you have not realized it was a gift, and now I am going to demand it back from you. Right? So clearly the rich fool did not realize, did not look at what he had as a gift. But secondly, this passage, this parable would have been like nails on a chalkboard. For the community that was listening to this. Because of what he says. Did you hear what he says? He says this. He says, I will do this. And I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. First of all, they would never have made a decision on their own. This was not an individualistic society. They would have gone to the elders out at the town gates and they would have said, you know what, I've got this extra grain. What do we think? What should I do with this? And they would have decided that together. But secondly, they never would have said this was my grain. This was my food. There was always a sense that when you had something, one of the questions was not just how does this money, how does this grain make a difference in my life, but how does it make a difference in your life? life? How might it make a difference in the life of the world? In other words, when we get a job promotion, when we get a job at all, whatever it may be, when we have money, when we win the lottery, when someone passes away and we get inheritance, whatever it may be, the question should always be this, what, not what does, how does this money simply change my life, but how might this money change the world? And see, that is a kingdom of God kind of way of living. One of the great things that Ken Bailey says about this particular parable is he says this. He says, the rich fool had enough money to buy a vacuum and then to live in it. Let me put that in our own terminology that I oftentimes hear. The rich man had enough money to buy his bubble and then live inside of it. How often do we hear about the bubble that we are able to live in in our area? Because the reality is this, wealth will almost always naturally begin to distance you from others. And so what James is saying is we need to poke a hole in that bubble by the way in which we are living. And how can we begin to poke a hole in that bubble so that we can help others to see this is what happens when you have money. These are the kinds of questions that you begin to ask. Now those of you who have gone to ZPC long enough, you know already you're predicting where I'm going with this. Which is that I am going to say that we should do a better job. I am not someone, I don't know why this is, it's just my personality. I am not someone who loves to just promote ourselves. Right? I get, and I hope this isn't slander, I get annoyed at times by pastors who just seem to be promoting everything great that they're doing. We're just great, we're fantastic. It annoys me, and I think it annoys some of you too. Maybe not, but so... 
Right? My, I always think we could be doing more. It's how I look at things. I always think that we could be doing more. But here's something I want you to know. And I believe this was from the Spirit. The 17th verse of chapter 4 says this. Those who know the good they should do and do not do it, they are sinning. And so what I want you to know this morning, there is not going to be any but or anything like that. I want you to know how thankful I am to you for the way that you give. Our fiscal year ends in May, May 31st, right? I did the knuckle count. It's May 31st. And two Sundays ago, two Sundays ago, we met our budget three and a half weeks early. And I want you all to know how thankful I am to you for that. How much I am giving God praise for your generosity. The truth is, when the money's not coming in, I'm more than happy to stand up here and say, come on, we can do this. It's our call. And so I want to equally then say, I want to give God praise for the generosity that you all have had because you realize, it seems to me, that the money that you have and the money that the church has is not just here to change my life or to change our lives, but is to change the world for the kingdom of God. And we try, we're not perfect at this, but we try to exemplify that as a church. We try to serve as an example. Right? That's why this fiscal year, what we've given away in our operating budget, what we've just given away is, is around $530,000. When you think of other giving that we have designated, it's probably much closer to $600,000 of the $2.3 million that we've given that is just simply going elsewhere. I want you to know it's going to places like, uh, like, a, like a ministry that helps um, um, Syrian refugees. Right, People who have left because of the fact that you all have said this isn't just for me or for one more vacation or one set higher of a nicer car or 10,000 more square feet or whatever else. That's a lot, I guess. But whatever else it may be, we, you, because of that, you have helped someone who was fleeing a war. I want you to know that. I want you to know you have helped those who are struggling with racism, and violence in, in, in northwest Indianapolis and on the east side of Indianapolis. I want you to know that you have helped to plant churches that, that they can then help others to learn about Jesus in places like Brazil and Romania. Not only that, you've helped with a particular a, a, a house that brings in women who have been abused and, and their children even who have been abused, and you give them life and hope. You have given, and because of that, we have been able to build houses in Thorntown and Lebanon and Indianapolis through the Habitat and Fuller Center for Housing. Because of the fact that you have given, we have been able to spread the gospel and places like Peru or in places like uh, Singapore and North Africa and Brazil and all of these places. Why? Because enough of us have said, no, 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 no. This money is not just about me. This is about saying, this is a gift. How can we change not just my life, but the life of the world? How can we be a kingdom of God kind of people? And I want you to know how thankful I and our leadership team Team is and our finance team is. I know, I know there are those voices, and, I, and I'm, I'm saying they're legitimate. I understand, hey, well, you know, the stock market's been good, so that's probably why. And I get that, and there's maybe truth to that. But here, let me also tell you this when I get extra money, my first thought is not, how can I give that away? Right? A lot of times, my first thought is, new car, 
That's my first thought. But I want you to know how deeply appreciative I am that you have given and given and given. I am thankful to God that you have not been content to build a bubble and then live inside of it. On Thursday, my uh, uh, eldest had a softball game. If you have children, you know this, that when you're uh, riding around in a car, oftentimes that's when you have kind of life lessons that you're trying to teach, right? And so it was me and my two oldest girls, and we were driving to Lions Park from my house, which is about two minutes. We probably should walk, but we don't. And so we're driving, and we're just chit-chatting. And so one of the conversations that came up is, oh, you know what? I don't like doing homework. I don't like doing math homework. I love reading. I don't like doing math homework. And so we had to teach a lesson. You know what? You don't always get to just do what you want to do. You realize that, right? I mean, you have to do math sometimes. Even if you'd rather just read, it's important. And so I said to her, you know, mom and dad, we have to do things all the time that we don't want to do. I.e., we're going to watch an hour and a half really boring softball game, right? <laughs> I didn't say that to them. And so they were like, wow, because I think most kids think that once you reach adult, all you do are the things you want to do, right? And so they said, well, you know, Daddy, what do you, what do you not like doing? What do you not like doing at work? And so the other one says, oh, he doesn't like going to meetings. I, I don't know where they got that from. It must have been their mom that told them that. But that's, I said, well, you know. And so I told them a few of the things I didn't really like that much, you know, things I don't really, you know, get all that joy out of. And so then one of them said, well, what do you really like? And so I, I said, oh, well, you know, I like doing this. I like, I like preaching. I like being able to do these things. And then I remembered, I said, well, you know, there are meetings that I really enjoy being a part of. I said, in fact, just two days ago, um, um, or maybe it was actually the day before, I said, I was in a meeting with a couple of ZPCers, and you know what we were doing? We got to sit there and we got to think about, because we, we had this money, and we got to think about what do we want to do with this money? Where do we want to put it? Because there are ministries who need it. And so we, we said, well, one of those options is to help a country that's kind of war-torn and to give hope for some of these followers of Jesus who have said, we are going to stay here in this country even if it puts our lives at risk that we could do that. And I said, well, you know what, then there's another option that we were talking about that we could help with some of these teenagers who are really struggling and who are afraid and we could kind of, you know, give money to the ministry and that will be helpful to them. And, 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 and so we, we, we talked about that a little bit and then we, you know, this it couldn't be that long of a conversation because again, we live two minutes away. And so we pulled into the parking lot and they got out to go run and, and, to, and to play their softball. And, but here's what I know. Here's what I know about conversations with little kids is that that conversation is still going on inside of their heads right now. Because kids, even if they look bored to tears, two or three months later, all of a sudden they'll pop up and they'll say something about that conversation. You have no idea they ever heard it. And as I thought about this reality of this conversation that I had with them, I thought to myself, I have to thank the people of ZPC for that conversation. I want you to know how thankful I am to you because you all gave me the opportunity to have that conversation with those two little girls. Here's the reality. Meg and I, we take some of our money. This is not bragging. This is what we do, right? You take some of the money and you decide to give it away. Now, we need to do a better job. I'll put myself in letting them know this is what we're doing. I need to get better at that personally. of saying, this is what I'm doing. But here's what I also know. Most kids, 99% of them think that their parents are weird. Right? And so if it's just mom and dad that are doing that, they think, oh, well, that's just what mom and dad do, but they're kind of weird. But here's the thing. When it is a community 
of six or seven or 800 or 1,000 who say to them, no, 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 no. This is not just what your weird parents do. This is what we do together. We are committed to saying the money that I have and that we have is not just to make my life better, but is to do kingdom kind of work. And this congregation is committed to that. And I want you to know, not as your pastor, I want you to know as Shaughnessy and Adelie's father, how thankful I am to you to be able to be a part of this church that says it is never about me. It is about how is it best that we can proclaim the saving death and the risen Lord and how can we provide for those who are hungry and give to those who are thirsty. And I want to thank each and every one of you for partnering with us in this journey. I believe that the Spirit of God smiles on this day. And I want to thank you for that. It is a blessing to be able to be your pastor. It is a blessing to be able to see those checks and to know the difference that we are making in the lives of people in this world. Do not, as Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good. Each minute that you spend and each dollar that you give, know this, it is a gift It is a gift from God. We receive it as a gift. And we are thankful to be able to see how this community and this world is changed across the globe all the way to the back seat of some little Volkswagen Jetta. Let us pray.